In part two of our conversation, Kim talks about her work with the Amity Trio and also how, as a teacher at Indiana University, she works with both the brass and vocal departments. Kim Caballo, as a performer, <laughs> your most recent project is the Amity Trio. And so yes. talk about the trio. It's, it's uh, horn, piano, and voice. Horn, piano, and soprano, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have... The, well, first of all, we like to eat. I think that's probably... The, yeah, so I've on heard. On the front page, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> also, by the way, accidentally make music. Yeah, <laughs> so, okay. The, really, our, um, our mission is to to perform music that, that uplifts underrepresented voices. So we, we actually just finished recording our, our debut album called Between Us Now, and it's all music by North American women composers. And then we have another, many, many, many ideas, but the, the next couple of projects involve um, the border, the porous intercultural border between Mexico and New Mexico and then the music and food and culture of more kinds of culture that happen on both sides of that border. And then um, we, there's another Latin American disc that we have planned and all sorts of, all sorts of fun things. Wow, that sounds great. Well, yeah. your first album then is, is North American Women Composers. Yes. Um, how many different pieces? How many composers? Three days worth of recording, whatever that is. <laughs> I think I think there were 16 or 18 tracks and there may have been 18 or 20 tracks. Anyway, it's a good hour's worth of music and three-fourths of it, more or less, are commissions. Wow. Okay. And so you had to write grants for that as more well? More grants. Yes. More gr- <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And are you the grant writer in the trio or does somebody help you with that? We have... So initially, yeah, it was Katie and Mike and me. Katie Dukes, Mike Walker, and me making, doing the grant writing. But fortunately, we got a, a grant in support of a grant writer, which is kind of hard to find. But we, oh, okay. we, we managed to get that one. And Christina Dioguardi is a, is a really excellent grant writer and talented on many other levels. She works with, with the Phoenix Ensemble. She, does, she plays bassoon. She's a really interesting musicologist. Um, she has many And you many got a grant. Cells to get her to write the grant for you to write grants <laughs> other yeah. other multiple grants. grants and we've gotten yeah. we've gotten a couple of them that, that she has written and we're mm-hmm. grateful for that that's what's helping to fund the fund the album with the idea being that we um can offer these pieces as part of a, a, a spark to kick off the that cycle that is hear the music want to perform the music want to know more about the composer learn more about the composer get more music from that composer like spiral that happens and helps to right. disseminate music in the world. Um, Cause these are all really interesting people and have completely different com- composition styles. So there's a, there's a lot to be, lot to be disseminated there and the mm-hmm. grants will help us to do that without needing to charge, you know, what would, what would typically be a barrier for especially students and young professionals to, to get access to new music. And so the music would, would range from being really quite conservative and tonal to pretty avant-garde mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think the most uh, as you said conservatively tonal is um some amy beach you know she did she has these three settings of browning poems and um they were origi- originally she had m- t- turned two of them into having violin obligato so mike just played the violin on his horn and then we wrote the obligato for the third one um and so that was that's the most that's the most on that side, and the most to the other kind of sensibility is 
a young composer named Noor Slim from Mexico City. And she's, first, first of all, she's hilarious. And secondly, she's really interested in f- like harvesting found sound and being also very playful. So she has some, some pieces that are with kids that are just like, here, turn on your blender. That's going to be the percussion instrument for today. Or, or you know, listen out your window to the cars honking and then do that. And that's going to be the, the basis for our song. So, the, so that's what you mean by harvesting sound? Found, found sound. sound. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. the pieces that she did for us, it's a three, uh, a three movement piece. And it's based on the myth of Coronas for the first movement. And then the second movement is a, it's based on a bolero. So it's, but it's about like hearing this bolero across the desert in a saloon that's in the middle of absolutely nowhere being sung by a single solitary, very drunk person who is also remembering the myth that we just heard. Okay. So it's this, it's just a fun jumble of, I don't know, think like Nat King Cole being interrupted by like a really hard rock station every four bars. Okay. It's it's a lot of fun, um, and then the last movement is also based on a on a traditional Mexican piece, but it sounds it's like turned into a headbanger. It's it's just a lot of fun. So we've got Amy Beach and we've got Norsling and a bunch of stuff in between. And stuff in between, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And your second album is going to be called Border Crossings. And, Border Crossings, and, yeah. Yeah, I remember you you said that the difference in cultures and languages can be really quite subtle rather than just a, a few things that, that there's a lot of difference differences that you have to I guess navigate your way through in terms of learning how to play these different pieces right well and for us to learn about too it's going to be it's, it's, it's as much about us figuring out what we don't know <laughs> in order to be able to do this effectively as as saying hey this is what it, this is what we are already certain about but that's why that's why we're we're hoping to find some cultural guides. Uh, we have been lucky enough to to interact with people who have agreed to be our cultural guides and um, both on the on the chef path and on the literature path and on the music composition path and it's going to be it's going to be quite fun to explore. And Mike and Katie live in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Live in Albuquerque. Um, so most of your rehearsals and your recording is done in New Mexico or do they come back up to Bloomington which is where you live? Well in the past year, we've been doing it, all of our rehearsals and performing entirely online through Jack Trip. Um, so with that, with that software that lets us collaborate more or less in real time. But, but otherwise, we divide our time between New Mexico and Indiana. And should I ask, uh, where's the food better? Well, at my house, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. No, um, ah. I don't think that we, we were talking about this the other day, actually, that we've not yet made a meal together that we weren't really happy with. Um, That's good. Yeah. That's a good percentage. Yeah. Uh, and most of the places that we've gone out to eat, whether it's, you know, in Albuquerque or in Bloomington or in Belgium or in Italy or whatever, that, that's also been a, a pretty good batting average. So I think, I, I don't know, I think, I think we'll be able to make do wherever we are. Yeah. Okay. That's good. The important stuff. Well, and then finally, as, as a teacher, um, Describe your position or what's your official title at Indiana University? Collaborative piano faculty and coordinating opera coach at the Jacobs School of Music. And 
essentially you work with singers and brass players. Is that correct? <laughs> For the most part, well, yes, and and pianists who are learning to work with singers and brass players. Okay, okay, coaching them. Yeah. What do you tell them in terms of, of dealing with, with brass players and singers, in terms of mentality, in terms of, of what they have to listen for or look out for? A lot of time, we'll have a lot of conversations about breathing because, you know, pianists don't actually have to intake oxygen to make noise on their instruments, whereas, whereas the other two do. And so having that, that cycle of breath and understanding what that means for phrasing and understanding what that means for the, you know, the expansion between the phrases and expression. So we talk a lot about that. Um, and for when they're working with brass players, it's learning to read the physical cues that aren't the, like, lift the trumpet and bob to start, but actually where the embouchure connects with the mouthpiece and what, what physically that looks like when the, t when the tone is going to articulate. Really? I've never even thought about that. So, so like starting a piece, you mean, so that you start together? Starting a piece or starting a phrase or moving through a phrase together, yeah. Um, the, because each person, <laughs> each person does that, that typical lift bob cue thing differently in relationship to when they actually start. So for some people it's lift, bob, play. And for some it's lift, bob, play. And for some it's lift, play, bob. And, you know, so you can't, like you can't, you can't really rely on that entirely, but if you're watching the embouchure and how the embouchure activates and connects with the mouthpiece, then that's going to be much more reliable. Boy, I've never heard that, it, that it, how? During my entire career of playing, I had never had an idea that a pianist was looking at my embouchure to get cues of when to play. Well, that's if we get to be lucky enough to stay to get to like to to stand close enough or to be in the to be close enough together in the physical space to be able to do that. Yeah, but but if you if you're performing with a, let's say a trumpet player mm -hmm. or a trombone player or a horn player, yeah, you are close enough, I guess, right, that you can right. see, yeah, yeah, what they're doing. Huh. Okay. And and. Is there something like that with a vocalist? Yeah, yeah. We talk about um, placing our notes with the vowels rather than with the consonants. Hmm. Okay. So if I mean, if we think about like with your name, right? We're gonna sing on the O, not sing on the T. So Tony, you would play with the O uh, rather than okay. trying to play with the T. Okay. Okay. What if it's just like like eighth notes, Tony? Still, it's to Tony. Yeah, Tony. It still places with the O and not with it. It's not Tony. But but if if the if it's on the downbeat, wouldn't the emphasis be on Tony? Yeah, but it's on the O, not on the T. In other words, the that there there's just it's a couple of milliseconds either way. Uh -huh. But uh -huh. that is what makes it feel like the pianist is rushing or the singer is rushing, or the singer wants to slow down. They place their consonants later. And that tells the pianist, I'm looking to slow down. Huh, okay. Mm -hmm. That's something I've never even thought about. And but, but always, all the time, all the time, we're really talking a lot about breath. But if you're stressing the vowel, then it would also make it a slightly gentler or less aggressive beginning of that phrase. Correct or not? Mm -mm. No, no. Because no. I'm not talking about the word emphasis. I'm just talking about the coordination of the sound with the sound. Oh, okay. So, okay, come here right now. Mm -hmm. You would still play it in a, in a really assertive, articulated way. Yeah. But mm -hmm. the notes would happen with the vowels, not with the k. 
So if you're doing, if you're, if you're accompanying um, a Handel aria mm-hmm. for trumpet and soprano, Mm-hmm. Are are you sort of in your head thinking of these two different types of of, of cues? Yeah, and well, or is and, it just so natural? Well, so when I'm working with students with a student pianist who is working with a student trumpeter and a student soprano, then we will have that conversation really overtly. Like these hmm, these okay. are so that all three. I want by the end of our time together, I want the trumpeter to speak soprano and piano. And I want the soprano to speak trumpet and piano, and I want the pianist to speak trumpet and soprano. So, right, that, so right. that there's that, and it's where that the larger the nexus is, then the more they're able to communicate effectively without necessarily having to use words, but they can just do it musically. Mm-hmm. But I'm most of the time we do have to have those those conversations really overtly. Now, when I'm playing with somebody like Mike and Katie, no, we don't. We just we just breathe together and go. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's something I've never thought of. I mean, I've, when I was a player, you know, occasionally I'd play with soprano or bass or something like that. And, and to me, it was just being aware of what they were doing and trying to, to blend and not overbalance them and things like that. But mm-hmm. I for sure was not as specific as, as, as you are or didn't realize the, you know, the techniques that you're talking about. When you were playing with them, do you, did you find that you were guiding mostly off of the soprano or mostly off of the keyboard or orchestra in terms of your timing? Uh, that's a good question. In terms of timing, I would think that I was just keying off of the music, not the orchestra or, or the soprano, but, mm-hmm. but that there's a certain rhythm and a certain tempo going on that, and that I wanted to be with that. In terms of soprano, I think... Let's say if I was playing with soprano, then I would be thinking of trying to blend with the soprano. So, so for example, I did, um, I made a, a one-piece comeback several years ago with Maria Bankson, who's a phenomenal soprano who's sung all over the world. She's incredibly great. And she did this recital at Stanford University where she played a piece of mine, and she said she wanted to do uh, a handle aria and i forget um i forget the name of it now but light is one of the things maybe you know the aria um light light eternal or or something like that it's only about a three minute long piece and i said well i can recommend some great players and she said no i want to do it with you because we're family friends since way back and and she sort of shamed me into doing it with her (laughs) and and so i had to sort of relearn how to to play again and the first rehearsal that we did, and she started, it started with soprano and the trumpet comes in after several measures. I was just stunned at how refined and how beautiful and how soft <laughs> she, she sang. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just so refined and so beautiful. And so that's what I was thinking about the rest of the time, was just trying to, to emulate that kind of, of beauty and sound. And not had I been a full-time player I think I could have come a lot closer but that was still my goal you know to to try and emulate that kind of sound so I wasn't thinking of of sort of what you're talking about but it was maybe more of a sort of a general idea if that makes sense mm-hmm. well and the lovely thing about handle areas is that they're basically one word for 20 measures so, yeah this is yeah <laughs> so it's all hell all the time. I don't okay I didn't. I didn't realize that about handle arias, but yeah, that's 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 true. I mean, if if you think of the Bach Cantata Fifty One, um, the whole last movement, which I think is maybe three minutes long, is one word: Alleluia. That's it. 
Yeah. I remember talking to Ed Tarr about that because I was going to have to play it or something like that. And he said, well, remember that you phrase a little bit differently than you would normally phrase. Because in Baroque music, you're always thinking of the downbeats. But it's like one, two, one, alleluia, 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 so that the, the second alleluia comes on the, on the offbeat. But I, I'm getting way too far into the weeds now in terms of, <laughs> well, no, but that, of what but, we're talking about. Well, but that's the same, right? You'd like you were starting to speak singer. Right? You were figuring out the word yeah, emphasis that's true. and how yeah. the word emphasis changed the phrase emphasis. And, and Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's, 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 it's just thinking of, of trying to be cognizant of what the other person is doing and what they're thinking about. Yeah. So, yeah. so in, in a way, I guess if you're, if you're doing it with, with piano, that you have three different ways of, of starting a note. One is pushing down on a key. One is buzzing your lips and making a sound, hopefully, through the <laughs> instrument. <laughs> And then the other is 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 producing sound through your vocal cords. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's I, for for me that's part of what is the magic, right? Is that as long as we all breathe together and breathe in character and and are trying to say the same thing, we're still in spite of those really big different differences in the ways of producing the sound, we're still able to make this music, right? The capital M music. Wow, that's that's interesting. Do you do you notice a difference in the mentality of brass players versus um, singers? Maybe because singing is something that we do before we're trained to do anything. You know, that that it comes from, from a deep place inside and is not necessarily something that is lifted off the page first. And whereas whereas instrumentalists, like most of us, say, okay, but here's here's a middle C, here's a whole note, go. And so then it ends up being this thing that is on the page that then gets translated through the instrument and then we figure out how to make music out of it. Um, so I think frequently I'll find myself talking with the instrumentalists that I'm working with about adopting more of the vocal mentality in terms of like, let it be the music that, that is there first. And you're just figuring out how to get it out through your instrument rather than the other way around. So for example, when a, when a trumpeter does those, the seven Defaya songs. Oh, right. Uh-huh. We, we might spend 45 minutes of the hour going through the poetry and going through the translation and saying, no, you, you can't, you can't breathe. That's in the middle of a word. The composer would not like not to be pedantic, but because that's, that really affects the phrase shape. And, you know, so like going through the, that background, like having it be born of the poetry rather than just because it's a nice melody that's on the page. Yeah. When I was teaching at the Hochschule in uh, Freiburg, uh, there was a, a uh, voice professor, uh, Professor Goritsky, who occasionally we would do master classes with him. And he was, he was great, and he was always just really nice and helpful. And so I had a student who was doing that have, take a lesson from him on the, the uh, Defia songs. And she, she came back, and, he, and one of the main things he said is, why are you playing that so clean? Yes. You know? Uh, because as, as trumpet players, we're taught to try and be clean and to be accurate and, and all of that. And he said, no, 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 you're missing it. He also told a, a student, um, a different student, uh, who had played the, there's a big aria uh, from Don Pasquale, um, a tenor aria, but it starts out with a trumpet solo, a long extended trumpet solo that's lyrical. And um, when people audition for my, position they that was one of the things she had to play for all eight candidates and they all said the same thing that i said which was um try to play long lines and then she played it for professor goritsky and he said why are you playing such long lines singers have to breathe 
<laughs> which makes complete sense, you know. Yeah. But we we tend not to think of that. Yeah. Well, when you have students that are auditioning for an opera company, are the things that you would suggest doing and not doing? Like during the audition itself? Yeah, I guess also maybe in preparing for the audition, but especially on the audition, walking, starting from when you walk on stage, mm -hmm. the, the limited amount of time that you have. People that I've seen be, be, take a successful path and be happy in that path frequently are just themselves. Like they don't think of the getting on the stage as a performance, but that they're already really being their best and most exuberant and most communicative self. So that that is just an extension of that. Um, and that, you know, a few, a few are introverts, but they're still being their best, most communicative self, not putting on a brand new mask, a brand new persona when they get on stage. And I think that reads really um, as an honest performer. And yeah. that's what a lot of, a lot of, a lot of us want to see that, right? Think about the, the really effective movie or play actors and actor and how they, like by the end of the day, you're convinced that that person really is that that person that character because of their their honesty of the of the portrayal and so that that reads whatever whatever the situation is and I think it's very appealing for a lot of people so that I guess that would be you know besides knowing your music and having practiced and know what the know what you're saying and you know all of the sort of fundamental stuff but just as an approach being being a being a real person I saw an interview with Joyce DiDonato uh, once where I think she really became successful at the age of 29 and had not done so well until then and she said she finally decided that she had sort of tried to be maybe not a diva but sort of be somebody that she wasn't and she thought i'm just going to go on stage and be who i am mm -hmm. and and she credited that if i'm correct in in remembering to her success you know to her becoming extremely successful mm -hmm. yeah but yeah she's a perfect example of one of those honest performers who also does her homework. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know this quote of, of George Burns? Do you know who George Burns was? Yeah. The comedian, actor. Mm -hmm. Somebody said, uh, "What? what's the most important thing to, to being an actor? And he said, honesty, once you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> right. So, so, yes. so maybe that, that has a little bit to do with it. Perfect. So um, how long have you been at, at Indiana University now? Um. Well, I came to school here, and then I went away, and then I came back and worked part-time for, for quite a while when my, when my kid was a goober, and then since then, probably 15 years, maybe. Okay. Well, let's say going back to when you were a student, even, mm -hmm. um, how has teaching changed? How has the school changed? Maybe not so much the school, but, but how teachers view teaching. Has that changed much? Besides not being allowed to have cigarettes in the studio anymore? <laughs> that's a big that's, one <laughs> probably if you were in Spain they'd, they'd still have the cigarettes for Italy but um, yeah. yeah but I mean in terms of are, are, are people more flexible now or the, the teachers that is I know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing isn't it to trace those those trends and to see kind of how how the pedagogy evolves I think that there's there are some now vocally I'm talking vocally there are okay. some that are 
really very much into the science of it and the vocology of it and the you know this is this is the picture of your of your vocal this is the video of your vocal cord go get go oh, go get right. scoped at the at the ENT and bring a video back and we'll talk about it um, and there are others that that still teach very much with imagery and with you know imagine that there is a rainbow coming out of your forehead or whatever the case may be and you know the but all of it does seem to be trending towards something that is a lot more student focused and less maestro focused meaning meaning it's the that the, the really strong teachers that are that I've gotten to watch work are those that are taking what they know but offering it in the context that the student can really glom onto and understand and work through and grow from versus this is how I did it I was successful do it like me the my way or the highway yeah routine yeah and it, that's for for my money of course that's a that's a it's a positive growth but it's it's also interesting to see within that space within the student centered orientation all of these different paths that are still going on with brass the brass professors do you notice a change also in in teaching I have noticed it becoming more student-centered just sort of overall. I've not seen the same extent of like scientific explanation or, or dissection, I suppose, as I have in some of the voice. But, but also, to be fair, I haven't set in on as many lessons or as many master classes with the brass as I have with the singer. So maybe, maybe there is that trend and I'm just not aware of it. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't think as much as, as with singers in terms of really knowing exactly what the voice does from what I've learned at least. Hmm. Well, Kim, it's been um, great talking to you again. And, and as I said in the introduction, I think it's really inspiring that you use music to bring goodness to the world, you know, to do good for people. And I wish more people viewed the world the way you do. Oh, thanks, Tony. I appreciate, appreciate, appreciate those kind words. In the bonus room, Kim talks about her inspiring work with an exchange program in Kenya and how several students from Kenya are now finishing their doctoral degrees from Indiana University, a real success story. If you enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to leave a review. 